More lights, more love. Though it may be the theme of Baltimore City's 2018 Neighborhood Lights Program, those words, more lights, more love, are more than just clever marketing for the community of Waverly. Neighborhood Lights is a community-based artist-in-residence project and an extension of the annual Inner Harbor-based Light City, a festival of light, music, and innovation now in its third year. As part of the initiative, the Rise of Charm City team has been working in Waverly and Better Waverly for the past five months to find the pulse of the neighborhood's wildly beating heart and to amplify it. It's been said that Baltimore is a city of towns, each distinct in its own way, even if those towns are only a few blocks wide or long. The boundaries change with time and are defined and redefined by the personalities of the neighbors, the schools, and the businesses. It makes sense then for this festival to shine light on the ever-growing string of towns that give Baltimore its warmth and character. Few of the city's towns boast as rich and as half-hidden a history as Waverly. It's a neighborhood of distinct pedigree and promise, but few who live outside it are fully aware of its role in the city's sports legacy or its reputation as a place where the residential and the commercial can successfully coexist. Though Waverly borders the better-known Charles Village Historic Able District, as well as Etnor Gardens, it has its own personality, as you'll hear from the people we spoke to for this podcast. Waverly was once a place where the bright lights and fireworks above football and baseball stadiums could be viewed from a back porch or yard. It was a place where any neighbor need only walk a few short blocks to find some of the best haberdasheries, record shops, and movie theaters in the city. It was and remains a community marked by its can-do spirit. Almost everyone we met who lived in Waverly for more than a few years boasted about how invested residents and workers had always taken the challenges facing their streets and schools into their own hands. Naturally, that process looks different in 2018 than it may have in 1968 or 1888 for that matter. But it's clear that despite all the storms the neighborhood has weathered, they're still up to the task. We may be illuminating Waverly's Main Street with decorative light, but this neighborhood beams all on its own. The love some of its longtime residents extend to one another shines brighter than any art display. I'm Stacia Brown, and this is a special Light City edition of The Rise of Charm City, episode 19, Rise and Shine Waverly. Originally known as Huntingdon, Waverly was established in 1840 as a mere six buildings along York Road. The town wouldn't be called Waverly until 1866 when it was renamed in honor of the debut novel of Scottish writer Sir Walter Scott. In its early years, Waverly attracted wealthy white urban dwellers looking for respite from the bustle of downtown business. We could go pretty far back on the founding history of this city neighborhood. It's well documented, largely by volunteer historians living right here in the neighborhood. Dating back to its earliest days, Waverly has had residential historians, including Louisa All, whose father was the town's founding blacksmith, and Lizette Woodward Reese, who documented daily life in the neighborhood through poetry and prose. Huntington uh, 
was a area that really extended, you know, down to like present day 25th Street, which was years ago was was known as the Frisbee Woods. That was a, like a mile beyond the city limits. It wasn't even in the city. It was in Baltimore County. This is one of Waverly's modern-day local historians, Joe Stewart. He's the first person we met in Waverly. We met him on a Saturday at the community's beloved year-round farmer's market, and immediately he began introducing us to everyone he greeted. I'd introduce him to the rise of Charm City. Mark has been with the Waverly Farmer's Market. (laughs) Hi, nice to meet you. Probably from 1980. Marsha Jews. Uh, he can tell you the history of the market, who's who, and you know, like, who's been involved in it, like all, all. In the weeks to come, whenever we mentioned that we wanted to tell the story of the town, anyone we'd interview asked right away if we talked to Joe. We assured them we had, and he'd even given us a brief walking tour to one of the best-known intersections in Waverly, Greenmount and 33rd. Greenmount, we learned, is a dividing line between sections of town, both geographically and demographically. In a, you know, like in a really generalized sense, the communities that are on the west side are generally uh, more wealthy and they're whiter. And the communities on the east side are more African-American and uh, poorer. there, there was a big shift during the period between the 50s and the 80s when uh, b- blockbusting took place and white flight took place. So neighborhoods on the, on the east side weren't always African-American. Um, and blockbusting is a huge part of Baltimore City's history. For those who need a definition, Blockbusting is the act of compelling white homeowners in racially segregated neighborhoods to sell by convincing them that an influx of black or brown home buyers will soon be moving in. Blockbusting is often referred to as a scare tactic because it could only work as a practice if white homeowners did in fact fear racial integration in their neighborhoods. Though there may have been some blockbusting occurring in Waverly, it didn't suffer nearly as much as many other parts of the city. We'll hear more about that later. It was a typical working-class neighborhood, you know. I mean, most some people there were um, everything from sanitation workers to carpenters to steel workers and more. Uh, Baltimore, with as it is now, but then it was different because you actually had white working-class neighborhoods and black working-class neighborhoods, even though they were highly segregated. They were all there, and there really aren't many white working-class neighborhoods left in the city, if any. This is Mark Steiner veteran Baltimore radio host and president and executive producer of the Center for Emerging Media in Waverly-adjacent Charles Village. Mark remembers living in Waverly in the 1970s. At that point, there were collectives, there were revolutionary collectives all throughout the city, people who were organizing in communities all across Baltimore. And John Brown was one of the major collectives that was in the neighborhood of Waverly. And it was made up of uh, a combination of people. A number of women uh, were part of our collective. It was more men than women in our collective house. Uh, Two of them were Vietnam vets. And uh, many of the people in the collective were working class folks themselves uh, and were organizing in the community. 
In 1970s Waverly, community organizing was huge. Waverly was a hub of the city's counterculture movement. It's where you could find hippies, communal homes, a free farm, black power movement organizers, and spiritualists. As the 70s sort of roll in, you start to see the establishment of lots of what you consider to be counterculture businesses, right? So a cafe, a food co-op, the Lesbian Feminist Collective was doing a journal and they had their offices upstairs. Um, there was, what else was there? There was definitely lots of coffee shops and the bookstore, right? So uh, it just increasingly became a drawing spot. Dr. Jody Kelber Kay is the Associate Director of the Honors College at University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and a primary investigator for the Baltimore Collectives and Communes Project, which collects oral histories from radical activists in the 1970s in Baltimore. She says Waverly was economically affordable at the time, so if you were young, and you were a resident, or if you were young and you were a law student, or if you were young and um, were interested in the counterculture, there are already people there. The People's Free Medical Clinic was starting to open. One of the longest legacies of the work activists took up in Waverly was the creation of a medical clinic that ran in its early days entirely on donations. And not just donations of money, but of time, equipment, furniture, anything you can imagine a medical clinic would need to run. It was a remarkable, really remarkable what took place there. A, a lot of progressive and radical physicians, uh, nurses, techs, volunteered their time to work in the clinic every night, which was amazing. We worked in there helping to manage the place, taking people's medical histories and helping people through the process. And it was an incredible, I mean, just think about that. This is people who, people, poor people who had no real access to health care like this, all of a sudden had this clinic. It's again where black and white communities met which became part of the organizing tool as well because it's where black and white working class worlds met in a, in a place that they both needed. Depending on who you ask or what you read, Accounts of the founding history of the People's Free Medical Clinic may vary, but most have one thing in common. It really was initiated by the Black Panther Party. The founding of the People's Free Medical Clinic was supposed to be a collaboration between the Black Panther Party and a bunch of white anti-racist activists who were mostly Johns Hopkins residents and some lawyers and their wives. They had raised money together. They had raised somewhere just between 430 or $450, which in 1972 was a lot of money. And just as they were really looking at that space on Green Mountain 31st, um, they got word from Oakland that all Black Panther Party chapters should divest themselves of working with whites because they had many chapters had been infiltrated and there had been major arrests and um, it's it was all you know an appropriate response. Um, and so the BPP had to pull out of this arrangement, and the white folks who were involved, the ones that we've talked to, were you know, sad about that. They really saw this as this amazing opportunity to kind of finally blend the things that they had all really felt were super important together. Members of the local Black Panther Party who'd been part of the clinic's planning phase decided to move west. So what they decided to do was just split the money in half, which I thought was really cool, right? Like it was being raised for the clinic, but everybody felt like the BPP you know, should have half 
um, to use to build the other, you know, to sort of put infrastructure into their office on the west side. So they split, you know, it's like walked away with $215 or whatever each and um, went ahead and, and ran. And the BPP said, you have our blessing and we are there with you in spirit. This outcome seems emblematic of the collaborative and organizing spirit that seemed common in Waverly. So the Black Panther Party was really revolutionary in providing free services and thinking about um, undergirding what the what government was not providing for for black folks. And so for the whites to, to, to do that, to still do that, I thought was really important. Though it underwent a series of struggles and transitions, the clinic managed to survive four decades of restructuring and economic hardship. It remained open until 2015. Aside from its reputation as a counterculture hub, Waverly is also home to one of the city's nine main streets. Waverly Main Street has long boasted a series of popular businesses that are just a few short blocks from its residents' front doors. Hi, I'm Mary Pat Clark, Baltimore City Council, and we're here at Ace Hardware that we love here in Waverly and are so proud that they came here because we wanted our hardware store back, and we got it in a wonderful way. Mary Pat Clark is a local celebrity. There's really no other way to describe her. Short in stature with the personality of a giant, Councilwoman Clark not only represents Waverly's district, she also lives in and loves this district. The Waverly neighborhood is a, is a uniquely wonderful place. Back when redlining came in back in the 60s, when um, a lot of people were fleeing. You didn't see that here in Northeast. Um, and people hung in, and they have remained an integrated, racially and financially integrated neighborhood through all the changes and running aways. And, and it's a wonderful place to be. Beginning before the 1950s and lasting until the 1980s, Waverly Main Street's already thriving businesses benefited from their proximity to a few major town draws. Some diamonds. Of course, you know, we, we had Waverly's the home of the original stadiums. That's right. Waverly was home to one of the most beloved and memorable stadiums in the country, Memorial Stadium, which opened in 1950. It's where the Baltimore Colts played before their middle-of-the-night team relocation to a city that shall not be named. And it was the longtime home base of the Baltimore Orioles. It's also where the Baltimore Ravens played their first games before moving downtown to M&T Stadium. Before it became Memorial Stadium, previous iterations were called Venable Stadium, Baltimore or Municipal Stadium, and for a time, Babe Ruth Stadium. There was also nearby Oriole Park, just beyond the Waverly limits, which has since undergone a redevelopment that's been pretty exciting for some of the folks in the neighborhood. You gotta go, you gotta go to Peabody Brewery on 30th Street and Barclay. It was where the, was it called the Negro Baseball League? where they played here, and talks about how they got decimated by the major leagues coming in and, and recruiting and all. Oh, I, I can't do the tour, but I've been on it. 
and that is a brewery. It's a great, we all go there. I, how could I have not mentioned that before? Over the years, the presence of the stadiums meant an influx of fans, both within the neighborhood and from all over the country and the world. It was only natural that many of those fans would also visit the nearby shops and restaurants on Main Street. While they were there, they likely visited record shops like the Radio Center and clothing stores, which Councilwoman Clark says, historically, have been a real business boon for the district, especially those targeting a particular buying demographic. The, the secret of Waverly Main Street is that our men's haberdasheries and all are very, very, very popular. Um, but there was one that my husband liked a lot that was here, um, and that's, that moved away or closed, but we don't lack for clothes for men. There's far more history in this illustrious city village than a mere half-hour podcast can contain. But you don't have to take my word for it. As it turns out, nearly anyone in Waverly can tell you something beautiful about the neighborhood. Just listen. This is a great community. It's funny, too. Uh, Sonia Merchant-Jones, you should talk to her. She's really a wonderful woman. But she, she got all the... Let me just say, the, the young men and women who we tend to find on a corner of um, Gorsuch and Independence, outside a store, inside a store, around a store, um, she had them all come to Thanksgiving dinner that she cooked and with, with the community so we could all get to know them as people, not as like, who's that standing on that corner kind of thing. And we need more of that going on. Uh, we need more Sonia's, you know, because she, they trusted and liked her enough for her to be able to pull that off. Then we all got to talk to them. Great kids. Thanksgiving just um, a year ago. Guys on the corner on the opposite end. People kept telling me, I said, well, I'm going to go and talk to them. I said, look, I'm going to cook Thanksgiving for you all. And I want you to come in and we're going to sit and talk about what's up with you. I even took it a step further and I brought in Safe Streets because one of the young men, Dante Tater Boxdale, I knew him growing up. And he brought his whole crew from Safe Streets in. And, um, you know, those guys were shocked that Safe Streets would come to see them. Not because there was an issue, but because we wanted to avoid one and we wanted to know something about them. But most of all, to let them know that they were a valued part of this community. Valued. And so many times you try to push people away and you don't know anything about them or why they are where they are. And we found out some amazing stories about why these young men stand on the corner. Now, mind you, we're not saying that uh, there's not people on the corner who you know, maybe doing things that they shouldn't do. We're not going to say that. But for the most part, one young lady told me, said, we feel safe. We feel safe. This is our meeting place. And we feel safe gathering here. We can't go anyplace else in the city and stand and feel comfortable because you all know us and we know you all. And they said, we're looking out for the community, really, and we're pushing people back from coming in and taking over this corner. My name's David Jansen. I grew up in Waverly. Uh, first 16 years of my life revolved around Memorial Stadium. 
summer nights you could hear uh, the crowds yelling Eddie 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 through the uh, for Eddie Murray for the Orioles and as we were kids we would park cars illegally for Orioles and Colts games the cops uh, didn't like us much but uh, it was great memories I was a lucky kid my birthday is July 3rd so the family would get together at my grandmother's house on Gorsuch Avenue. Everybody would go to the backyard. Everybody remembered my birthday because July 4th. And we would watch the fireworks from Memorial Stadium every year. So I think that's probably why I might be one of the more popular uh, cousins. And then ice skating. The ice skating rink was outside of the stadium. We did that a lot. And then also uh, Christmas trees. So they sold Christmas trees inside the stadium, except when there was Colts games. Watching Memorial Stadium be knocked down, and I actually was flying in from Atlanta and saw the stadium for the first time being knocked down. It was like, for me and my family and friends, it was like our 9-11 almost. Even though we knew it was happening, it was just such a big part of the community. So that it was hard to see. So my name Joseph Kane, K-A-N-E. I grew up in Waverly, um, went to the Army, came back my own family, and we moved back to the area and put them in the school. We, we chose to come back to Waverly because of the brand new school, the proximity to Morgan, the brand new YMCA, access to downtown. It was like the perfect place to go, you know? And then we had four children, so it was like, you know, we did elementary, middle school, and then there you have it. So everybody in the community kind of know each other, and it's kind of a place where you want to come back and be part of, you know. Growing up around here, I was uh, grew up here when the uh, stadium was still there. So, you know, seeing the blimp, you know, in the, uh, in the morning before the games would start, uh, when the Ravens came, being a part of that, you know, it, it was just one of those things where you, you, you didn't understand what kind of history was happening, but you knew you were sad when the stadium came down. And then um, seeing it now, you know, you don't walk past that platform or that, that space without thinking about the old stadium and um, just the activity that used to happen around those game days, you know. People started to not invest in Waverly, you know, because of the uh, stadium uh, and all of that. But when the stadium was here, it was a party. Every time a game was in that stadium, you could hear it and it, it kind of uplifted the city. Golly day, oh, the theater, the boulevard. Oh my gosh, the boulevard theater. This boulevard movie theater was like something you would see in the movies itself. They used to have green floodlights that shot up from the floor. And they used to have all these beautiful plants that went all the way around the lobby. It was the cleanest, most prettiest thing I'd ever seen. And I always said, I want to go in there. But that's not where we went. We went over in West Baltimore to the Royal. We had to go, that's where we had to go to the movies. And so you see how things change, but the facade was just so beautiful. And when you went past it, you said, ooh, you know, and that's how the boulevard was. I remember the Woolworths when we came to get our Easter gloves. I remember the bakery that whenever I got some money to go in to get something, it was always a good day. I remember buying my high school ring in 1975 from Zales on the corner because I didn't want the Western Shield. 
I remember all the beautiful flowers all up and down Greenmount in front of the Woolworths and all of the merchants, all of the little dress shops, the hairdressers, the florist shops, all of those things. I remember the book um, mart that was uh, on uh, the corner of 32nd and Greenmount. I remember all of that. That no longer exists. Change is good. And I think people have always had love for Waverly Main Street. But I think it's kind of like a renaissance. Look at what we have here in the brewery. Uh, I think that uh, stores have, uh, merchants have started to come back into the neighborhood. And uh, it, it's just good to see. My name is Deborah Evans. I live in neighborhood. I'm known as the playground lady. A lot of people were like, you were a crazy person. My family said, we used to, we love what you were doing, but sometimes that's all you talked about, but that's how you have to get it done, you know? And so that, that um, playground there is just, it's for every child in Baltimore. And when I'm anywhere, I tell kids, this is yours. It's not the Y's, it's yours. It's everybody. You don't have to be a member of the YMCA. And how come, urban kids, how come they didn't deserve a big playground that their families could work on. So I've just been active. And then here, how 901 started, and this 901 Arts, it's 901 Montpelier Street, this was Habitat for Humanities. And I asked, could we use this space one summer? Six weeks, that's all. And it's been going, you know, it's been over 10 years, it's been going. Uh, Sarah Tooley, and I'm the director here at 901 Arts. So this is where like the main art classes happen. We also have community dinner where we sit in a circle and answer questions to kind of like build relationships and get to know each other more. I feel like it's it's awesome to be a part of this like really kind of like small grassroots thing and have seen it grown and like be in service to the parents and adults in this neighborhood who have a vision and work full-time jobs and and then they're like task me with like making stuff happen and so that like whatever they kind of want to see I do my best to make possible um, and so it's been really like kind of awesome to work with really driven women who, I don't know, won't settle for less, and they inspire me daily. Okay, uh, my name is Patricia Taylor. I'm a member of the Waverly Improvement Association, and I have lived here for, since 2000, uh, for 16 years now. And it's a pleasure to be here to tell people how I feel about my community and how I love it. My first introduction to the neighborhood was uh, to the kids. I started playing with this little girl that was like 10 years old because her great-grandmother was unable to play with her, so I would jump rope and take her to the park, and it started off with just her and going down to uh, the Old Waverly School, and sometimes I would even have up to 10 children with me. So all the kids in the neighborhood knew me, but I know, the parents didn't know me, but I knew all the kids in the neighborhood, so that's how I really got introduced to the neighborhood. I guess the best thing I can say is that when I work in the community, it's not about me. It's about serving others, because that's the best thing I like. I like to, when I go and walk and talk to people, I like to see the smiles on their faces and know that um, I've accomplished something, not so much for what so much for what I did, but from what I've gathered and, and, and sharing with others. And a lot of people know that, like, if I made a difference, other people can make a difference, too. They just need to open their hearts. Just open your heart, and it makes a difference. And we have to start doing things to keep each other lifted up. You know, nobody has um, 
a magic wand in their pocketbook, but certainly we have a lot of love to go around. And you see that by all the people that are out there in that room. So yeah, I'd say grab one and they'll tell you the same thing. Love is eternal, sacred light, free from the shackles of time. If you're listening to this episode of The Rise of Charm City during Neighborhood Lights, you are sitting inside the former Boulevard Theater, which currently houses the offices of our Neighborhood Lights community arts partner, Waverly Main Street. Thank you so much for coming out to listen live in this wonderful, richly historic neighborhood where long, long after we leave, there will be more lights and more love. This episode has been brought to you by Light City and Neighborhood Lights. Neighborhood Lights is made possible with the support of its community engagement partner, T. Rowe Price. Additional support has been provided by Bloomberg Philanthropies. Special thanks to the Enoch Pratt Free Library, especially its Waverly Branch, 901 Arts, and the 29th Street Community Center. Emily Drasher, Executive Director of Waverly Main Street, Javon Hagen, Executive Director of Marmia, the Mid-Atlantic Regional Moving Images Archive, the Baltimore City Archives, shoutouts to Rob and Saul, Town Historian Joe Stewart, Pete's Grill, where the home fries are to die for, Peabody Heights Brewery, Ace Hardware, and Benjamin Moore, the store cat. Thanks for letting us pet you and take your photo like the celebrity you so clearly are. Councilwoman Mary Pat Clark, and everyone in the neighborhood who welcomed us and shared a bit of their light and love with our team. And thanks to you all for being here and for listening. 